back here again and to, to worship with you again. And for you who might be new, I was here uh, ages ago. It's been a, I started, I guess, about 10 years ago when I was here as an interim. And uh, it's just really good to see so many of you again and to and uh, had the opportunity to uh, shake hands and give hugs, and we can do that again, can't we? But I've been worshiping with you quite a bit. I don't know, you didn't know that, but uh, Alice and I watched online often and so much appreciated this worship service and, and, and uh, your whole team here, your whole worship team. I have fond memories of the Mops group, <laughs> believe it or not, and I remember that group. Uh, my granddaughter was born when we were here. We have one granddaughter, and she's the apple of our eye, of course, and, and they gave two overflowing baskets of things for babies, you know, and it was wonderful, and stuff that we'd, ne- we'd never seen, you know, the, that it, was, it was really remarkable the way things have progressed. And then uh, I remember, too, um, going on a mission trip uh, uh, and to Romania, and, and what a great time that was, and just this, uh, it's, it's just so good to be back here again. You know, this is uh, this interim thing, uh, which is transitional ministry uh, during a time of change, and uh, for uh, between pastors, for churches, and I, you know, I always thought that was for pastors who couldn't do anything else until I became one, and, and, and then, and, and, then, and I, I always thought everyone was going to be the last one, and Alice said that to me uh, always, the last one. So I went to First Pres of San Antonio, and that was the last one, but then I came here, and this definitely was the last one. We're going to retire in Florida, be close to our granddaughter, the last one. And then we actually did uh, an 18-month interim in, uh, in Inverness, Inverness, Florida. That was the last one. And then after that, went to Austin, Texas, and that was the last one. And then the last one was a 22-month one, or 21-month one, right outside of Philadelphia. And, uh, and then last summer, that was the last one for sure, and then, uh, then last summer, I spent the whole summer doing an amazing thing. I went to a church that I'd left 25 years ago. Those people had gotten old. <laughs> now, I, you know, I certainly didn't think I'd gotten any older, you know, but, but they'd, gotten, they'd gotten older. And, um, and uh, you know, and that reminds me of how much I also appreciated the, the um, second half adventures when I was here too. I see some of them here, and, and uh, that wow, what a great group that was. But uh, when I was there at uh, Bonham Presbyterian Church in West St. Louis County last summer, uh, most of the time it was uh, online, you know, so I didn't see a lot of the people, but I did have a chance to see some of them and uh, spend time with them. But I'll never forget going into the sanctuary the first time after I had not been there. It was an English countryside Gothic sanctuary, and there were three panels of a large stained glass window in the front, and they were really kind of abstract, and I'm not very observant, and I'm not very good at abstract things, and and so um, I really didn't know other than the beautiful colors when the sunlight came through what was depicted there. And uh, then on my first Sunday there, they, they were sure that I would never be their pastor when the, the committee met, but somehow God worked, and, and I was. And, uh, and I remember one of the, 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 the search committee, uh, and the, the PNC committee said, knowing that I wasn't going to be their pastor, said, you know, if the person who comes here, the person who comes here doesn't walk on water the first week, then the place will be so empty next week that they will be able to shoot a cannon. He took great joy in saying that. I, I didn't like that, but shoot a cannon down the middle and it won't hit anyone. And uh, so it was full that first week. And I mean, there were, the balcony was full. 
the, the main sanctuary was full. There were people standing in the back. And I looked out at them, and I was scared. And I looked out at my wife, Alice, as if to say, what are we going to do? And, and she looked at me back and kind of, no. She said, you looked as gray as when you got off that amusement ride that time when you were so sick. And so uh, because I, didn't, I was so scared, I looked up at the window. And for the first time in that window, I saw what it depicted. It was Jesus Christ with open arms, head slightly tilted, and wherever you were, he was looking right at you. And I saw him looking right at me, and I was so moved by that. And I realized what we got to do here, if this is done right, is we got to make sure that they see right through you, Jim, and that they see Jesus. Jesus is the one who has to be seen here. We need to make Jesus visible. It's interesting, after I left San Antonio, the pastor who came after me made the theme or the mantra of their church, living to make Jesus visible. Living to make Jesus visible. When you think of uh, the early church, and you've been studying the early church in the book of Acts, that's what they were doing. They were making Jesus so visible in such a tantalizing way that people all over the area and then spread through the then known world were experiencing Jesus. There wasn't an institutional church, it was Jesus who was being experienced. Martin Luther said we need to be like little Christs so that people see Jesus. And it's only possible through the Holy Spirit we know that people see Jesus in us. I want to go one step further. How do we make Jesus visible? I remember one time, and I've shared this many times before, driving downtown Phoenix and seeing a church sign, and it simply said DWJD. And it was the same time that WWJD was popular. People had it on their bracelets and saw it, you know, in, in the background of big sporting events and stuff like that. And what do you think DWJD means? Anyone know? Doing what Jesus did. In other words, doing what he did. And if we're going to make Jesus visible, it's crucial that we do what Jesus did. And that's what I want to talk about today. I'm going to talk from a passage that I've looked at uh, many times and probably preached from more than any other passage in uh, the time that I've been a, a pastor. It's from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Now, it's always important to know the context of a passage. If we don't know the context, sometimes it becomes a pretext, you know? And the context here is really important. Jesus, in, in the preceding chapter, uh, was baptized by John. John prepares the way for him. Jesus just has returned from his time of temptation, his 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, and now a time of transition. His ministry is going to begin. And as ministry begins, it's a difficult time for him, humanly speaking, because John the Baptist has been incarcerated. And he knows that that's the beginning of the end for John. And he knows that someday he's going to face an even more difficult death. So that's where we begin in Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 12. Listen now for the word of the Lord. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. 
land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Notice his first sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or is near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Follow, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the regions across the Jordan followed him. May God add his blessing, understanding, and most importantly, his application upon this, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. If you would, join me in prayer. God, as we look at this passage of Scripture together, may it come alive. May your spirit be the go-between. You know, my words are faltering and will soon fall short, but your word has stood the test of time, and your spirit has been the communicator through the ages. So I pray that you would speak to the people and the preacher alike. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. The first thing that we find, the first activity of Jesus, major activity of Jesus, is that Jesus preaches with passion. Now, notice where he goes, too. He goes to the northernmost part of Israel, the, people that it, the place that is most densely populated, and the people are furthest from the religious institution, at least the center of it, and people are furthest from God. And many of the people in the religious institution thought those were pagans up there, those Gentiles. And so there was a great diversity there too. So Jesus went where the people were, and not the religious people, but the people who were furthest from God. And he preached with passion. Can you imagine what it would have been like to walk with Jesus and to be with him as he preached? I think you'd see fire in his eyes. It wouldn't be the kind of fire that would scare you. It would be the kind of fire that would draw you in. And the reason being that he realized there was an urgency about what he was saying. He wasn't just going through the motions. He realized he was only going to be there for a short time, and he needed to make his point. Jesus' first recorded sermon was the same as John the Baptist. I don't think it's plagiarism. He wanted to, he wanted to uh, speak what was most important, and his first sermon was repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. The word repent is often looked at in a, in a negative light because you, you look at someone who's got a, a sign and looking down their nose at you and saying repent, at least that's what I sometimes visualize it as, but it was one of the most positive words you could possibly think of. The word repent means you could turn around. 
You could have a second chance. It's the Greek word metanoia, and it has the idea of moving in a direction and then hearing God's call, turning around from going your own way, what's right in your own eyes, doing what, what fulfills just you, and turning around and moving toward God and then beginning to walk with God. That word repent is so important. It meant forgiveness. It meant second chances. I remember Charlie. Charlie was, uh, uh, lived close to St. Louis across the uh, Missouri River in uh, St. Charles. And uh, Charlie was a 70-some-year-old. He came to a cursillo, and I worked with an Episcopal cursillo a lot when I was in uh, St. Louis, like your great banquet. And Charlie came to a point of faith on one of these weekends, which was amazing and wonderful. And he wanted to be baptized immediately. Now, we Presbyterians wouldn't do that. We'd have to have our session approval and all of that. But the Episcopalians, they were, they were a little more freed up, and so they said, sure, we'll do it. And so we had a, a really special time where, where Charlie was baptized, and he said, when he was finished, he said, you know what it feels like? He said, you know, I like to, I have a vineyard, and I really like to be out there digging in my dirt, and, and it's really hot and muggy there in St. Louis if you've been there in the summertime. And he said, uh, and when I'm dirty and sweaty and I go inside, I take a cool shower, and I feel so clean and refreshed, like I'm starting all over. I said, that's exactly what I feel right now. That's what Jesus came to bring, that kind of refreshment, that kind of second chance. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, he says. The kingdom of heaven is here. And with that, the, the kingdom of heaven was a rule by God. It was a rule by God that they'd look forward to throughout the Old Testament. Now it was finally at hand. It was a rule by God so that we would live hopefully, as God always intended it to be. The manifesto of the kingdom is found in the Sermon on the Mount on, in 5 through 7 of Matthew, directly following this. Well, Jesus knew there was a sense of urgency as he talked about is near, it's here. It's not something you're just looking forward to anymore. It is now. Can you imagine hearing that news, being with Jesus? Well, the Greek word for preaching is the word kerygma. Kerygma has the idea of a herald. You know, they didn't have all the microphones and stuff like we have, and, so, and, and the, they didn't have the communication systems that we have, so there would be a herald who would go around, and he would say, guess what? The king is coming. The king is coming. Or the war is over. Or make announcements like that. That's what preaching should be, making the announcement that there is the possibility of a second chance, a new life transformation. Oh, we desperately need to be sharing that good news with others today, making Jesus visible, DWJD, preaching. Now, it should be sharing, not shoving. You know, and far too often we've, we've, uh, we've had the problem of shoving and people have rebelled against it. Or sometimes we're pretty insensitive and, and there are mixed messages. I remember uh, several times when I would uh, be with a, a particular, at a restaurant with a particular group for many weeks in a row, I would ask the uh, server, what's the worst day of the week for you? They would say, every time it's happened the same way, Sunday morning. It's because of the church people. They are the most insensitive 
They are the cheapest, <laughs> you know, and, and, it's, and, and, and one of them even went as far as to say, we had this new server, and they made her weep her first day. Those church people. None of you do that, of course. I know that. But, but I want you to know that it's crucial that we share, that we listen, that we respect people, that it all adds up. Our personal stories are the most effective. And I remember when I was in uh, uh, Accra, Ghana, West Africa, uh, and uh, one of the, the person who was leading our group, who was a, an OBGYN physician, and he, he told the story of how he came to a point of faith and to speak so loudly about what we're talking about. He said he was the chief resident of a medical school in Chicago, and he said uh, in, in the OBGYX, GYN section, and he said um, he was told, and he was pretty full of himself, he said, he, he readily admitted that. He was living a pretty wild life, and he said that uh, there was a, a warning from other doctors that in, in the next round of family practice physicians coming through, there was going to be this guy from Africa. His name was Seth, and Seth would try to convert him. <laughs> he, would try, he would try to shove, he would try to do whatever he could to convert him, and he said, be ready. So, the time went on, and Seth didn't say the first word to Scott. And finally, they were up late at night waiting for a delivery like OBGYN people do, and waiting until the baby would be born, and, and Scott looks over at him and says, Seth, I can't believe it. I was told that you were going to try to convert me, and I was told to watch out for you. And Seth had the biggest smile on his face, and he said, the Spirit told me do not say anything to you that you would ask me. And within a week, Seth had come to, a, I mean, Scott had come to a point of faith in Christ, and he helped to form a mission with Seth in Africa, in Accra. So, it's so important that we preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Second major category or, or activity is Jesus taught with authority. He taught wherever he went, and he taught in rabbinical style. If you've ever been in a teaching hospital, it must have been something like that. In a teaching hospital, you have usually fellows and sometimes residents who are, are going with the professor. I had a shoulder uh, replacement a couple years back in Tampa, and the guy that I had was a very well thought of uh, shoulder specialist. And uh, so he had four fellows with him when he came into my room and a resident with him, and, he, uh, and he, he was teaching. That's what it was with Jesus. Wherever he went, there were people following. His disciples were right there, but there were other people too. And he was using the common stuff of life. He might look up in the sky and say, look at those birds. Or he might talk about the farmer there, or the seeds being sown, or, or you could go on and on and on. He used stuff that everyone could, re could relate to. He also used stories. Remember Ken Miedema? who's a, a Christian balladeer, said, stories are the currency of the street. And he used stories that made a difference. They were, they were simple stories in a sense, and yet they were infinitely profound. They were stories that surpassed uh, the authority of the teachers of that day. They were captivating. Now, you may realize that sometimes teaching and preaching are very much alike, and I like the distinction that a, that a British writer says, his name is Michael Green, and he says that teaching is directed toward informing the mind while preaching is toward reaching the will. 
teaching and forming the mind, preaching and forming or reaching the will. Teaching helps people who have responded to preaching to grow deeply in their faith so that that relationship with Jesus becomes more real. When I was in St. Louis as a pastor, um, there was a man who came with his, with his intended. They wanted to be married. Now, he was a person who hadn't been a church person, and he was a, f- a young fireman and wonderful guy, just a really great guy. But uh, he, the first time they came to church, he sat in the back row of the balcony, and that was by design. He wanted to be as far away from me as he could possibly be because he was afraid that something crazy was going to happen in church. And so, but each week he said, it felt like you were speaking to only me. That was a spirit working. He came to a point of faith, and he was on the way when I left that, that church. But that church had two wonderful teachers after I left. One became a seminary professor afterwards, and the other was one who had come out of InterVarsity and was great at mentoring, and they, he mentored him. When I went back last summer, he was one of the leaders of the church. Why? Because he'd had good, strong teaching. He'd had mentoring that helped him to grow. He and I did a dialogue sermon one of the, the times I was there, and it was, one of the, it was a, <clears throat> a great joy to be a part of it. Oh, it's crucial in the the time that we're living in history with all kinds of competing philosophies and ideas, as well as ways to communicate them, it's crucial that we make Jesus visible by emulating Jesus, by teaching in the power of the Spirit, helping people to grow in that relationship with hopefully the visible Jesus. Now, the third major activity of Jesus was he healed with compassion. Verse 24 describes all the kinds of diseases and maladies that people brought to Jesus. And really, healing was his calling card. That's what brought a lot of people to him. They were, just as we would, wanting their their loved one to be healed. They were desperate, especially with not the medical kinds of uh, uh, things that we have today. And I want to tell you, can you imagine what it would have been like to be with Jesus? I mean, it it, it sounds, you know, we, we look at beautiful pictures and depictions, but i got to tell you, I think it would have been really earthy. When you think of some of the sights, some of the smells, some of the sounds, if you've been in a trauma center during the midst of a really difficult time, you know what that's like. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult time. And so that's what it was with Jesus. And yet Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us, in all of our earthiness, in all of our pain. And I believe that's what he calls us to be, too. I mentioned that, uh, that uh, I was in Accra, Af- West Africa. Well, a young woman came over from there and graduated from IUPUI, and then she went to Harvard Medical School, and now is at uh, Dana-Farber in, uh, in Boston. And uh, when she was going to become a psychiatrist, she was at Mass General doing her residency, and going to become a psychiatrist, I said, Hermie, why would you want to become a psychiatrist? I hope there are any psychiatrists out here. But uh, she said, why, why? I said, why would you want to become a psychiatrist? And the reason being that a lot of the ones that I knew uh, didn't spend much time with people. They kind of passed them off. And that's, that's, that's a protocol that works. And, and they give medication, and that's needed. So I'm not in any way disparaging any of that. But I said, why would you want to do that? And she stopped me in my tracks. She said, it's because I want to sit with people in their suffering. 
I want to be there with them. And so she's doing psychosomatic psychiatry in, onco in an oncology hospital where people are suffering. And she's doing research to help deal with that kind of suffering. And she's coming as a passionate Christian. She's making Jesus visible. I talk about surgeries. I, I had another surgery this, this past January, a wonderful Indian doctor, young guy. And uh, I looked at his profile, and at the end of his profile it says, his motto is, I dress wounds, God heals them. So after I'd had surgery, I talked to him and said, what about that? That's kind of neat. And he said, oh, yes. He said, by all means, I know that I can only go so far. But then it's God who brings the healing. If we take Jesus seriously as a church and make him visible, then the church needs to be like a trauma center. And that isn't pretty sometimes. And sometimes it may uh, be disgusting to us as we see all kinds of people with all kinds of needs, but that's what we're called to do. I really appreciate the things that you do here. I was a part of the food pantry and that ministry, and I, I love the way you pray with the people who come. And I love the way that you're thinking about building a building especially for that. Praise be to God, a way of bringing healing to needs. And I also heard about the, the emphasis that you're going to have with city life, where you're taking a particular area that's a needy area of our city and seeking to be incarnational like Jesus was, to come in and be with them in their needs, bringing His touch. Healing takes place in all kinds of ways, physical, emotional, and spiritual. I believe we need to make Jesus visible in our world today by healing with compassion. Well, I got good news for you. I'm almost finished. And so you should be asking the question now, so what? I, I hope you're asking that question. So what? What difference does this make? We spent this time here, and we talked about this passage, and you talked about those three ministry areas. So what? What difference is it going to make this week in your life and mine? Well, dear friends, I believe that we're in a season of transition. I, was, I had lunch with a, or breakfast with a guy this week over at Keystone at the Crossing, and he was a guy who's worked his way up in the IT field, and he now is kind of a, a manager of the, in, in his particular, with his company, of some of the major um, companies in, um, in, in the Midwest. And he looked over at a building, and he says, see that building over there? And I said, yeah. And he said, I haven't been there since a year ago, February. That's where our offices were. I'm not even sure they have an office there anymore. He said, I haven't been on a trip. I used to travel maybe once a week or so, and I haven't been on a trip during this whole time. We're living in a different world. I think, like Jesus, we're at a time of transition, aren't we? We don't know what it's going to be like. I mean, as we come out of the pandemic, some experts say that 10% of the churches are going to close. Others uh, would say attendance is going to be horrible. It's good to see all of you here, and I don't see anyone in their PJs. But, uh, and I remember how I loved being in shorts and a T-shirt and no shoes on and, and maybe co coffee and maybe still a, a bagel or something like that in hand. But it's great to be together. We don't know what it's going to be like. And <laughs> multiply that by before the pandemic, Nearly 40% of the people that were polled said they were not a part of any religious institution. Even more in mainline denominations like ours is this crucial. So we don't know what 
this transition is going to bring. But I believe in this deeply polarized climate that we have, if we're going to make a difference, and you are in an area that is highly populated, and, and like most cities in our country and in our world, there are many people far from God here, much like Jesus when he went up to, to Galilee. When we look at the future, and there's so many, I don't know what's going to happen, we need to look at what we do know. And I do believe without question, if we're going to impact our world, we must make Jesus visible. <laughs> not making primarily ZPC visible, not making any strategy visible, not making any program visible, not making pastors visible, not making property visible. The bottom line is making Jesus visible. The Jesus who brings forgiveness, second chances. The Jesus who brings meaning, purpose, and joy to our lives. The Jesus who brings us hope, not only for this life, but the life hereafter. The bottom line is Jesus and making him visible. I want you to each ask yourself the question, am I making Jesus, am I living so that Jesus is visible in my world, in my sphere of influence? A couple of weeks ago, Alice and I celebrated our 52nd anniversary. I know you don't think that we're that old, but we are. And uh, the, the woman, I, I said, you know, this is our 52nd anniversary to the, the server, and she was, of course, very nice about it and everything. And she said, what's your secret? We talked about communication and all those things. And then, then Alice said, it's because of our faith, too. Our faith is really what's kept us together and been such a, a wonderful part of our lives. A little bit later, she came back and she said, are you guys religious? She said, and this is something I wasn't expecting. She said, you have that glow about you. Whoa, I didn't realize it. And I think that's often the case. If we're really making Jesus visible, it's not something sometimes that has to be intentional. It's something that just happens naturally through the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, dear friends, we must preach, sharing, not shoving sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, listening, ready to tell them the story of what it means to us. And maybe you're here today saying, you know, I don't really have a relationship with this Jesus. Well, today is a good day to start, listening to someone who would share their story. Tap someone on the shoulder next to you and say, how would I find this Jesus? How could I begin a relationship? We need to be teaching that is mentoring. One of the things I appreciate about this church is the disciple-making church that is mentoring people. You've done that so well. And healing, bringing healing wherever we go. Are you doing that in your life? Are you an agent of reconciliation, of healing in all that you do? And what about the church as a whole, ZPC? We're not talking about another program, another study, another sermon series, another strategy. Are people drawn to this church? Maybe like moths are drawn to light, or bees are drawn to honey, or bears are drawn to honey. I know maybe my bees aren't. Bees make honey, but um, <laughs> but bears are drawn to honey. So um, you know, is that is that you? Are people coming to be a part of who you are because there's something special about you? Oh, I pray that we might make Jesus visible by DWJD. Let us pray.